0: Hello, and welcome to Places to Sleep. My name is Sarah. In every episode, I will be reading you excerpts of place descriptions from fiction, usually fantasy books. The idea behind the podcast is that it gives your mind a place to be. It gives you something to visualize as you're drifting off to sleep. Or, if you're not someone who sees pictures in your mind, then it gives you a voice, a narrative, to drift off to. I find it really helps me. I recommend, if you can, set a sleep timer. I hope that you enjoy, and I hope that you find a really nice place to sleep. places will be coming from Neverwhere, a novel by Neil Gaiman. This was first published in 1997, but this will be the author's preferred text. Three years in London had not changed Richard, although It had changed the way he perceived the city. Richard had originally imagined London as a grey city, even a black city, from pictures he had seen, and was surprised to find it filled with colour. It was a city of red brick and white stone, red buses, and large black taxis, which were often, to Richard's initial puzzlement, gold or green or maroon, bright red postboxes, and green grassy parks and cemeteries. It was a city in which the very old and the awkwardly new jostled each other, not uncomfortably, without respect, a city of shops and offices and restaurants and homes, of parks and churches, of ignored monuments and remarkably unpalatial palaces, a city of hundreds of districts with strange names, Crouch and Chalk Farms, Earl's Court, Marble Arch, and oddly distinct identities. A noisy, dirty, cheerful, troubled city, which fed on tourists, needed them as it despised them, in which the average speed of transportation through the city had not increased in three hundred years following 500 years of fitful road-widening and unskillful compromises between the needs of traffic, whether horse-drawn or, more recently, motorized, and the needs of pedestrians. A city inhabited by, and teeming with, people of every color and manner and kind, When he had first arrived, he had found London huge, odd, fundamentally incomprehensible, with only the tube map, that elegant, multicolored, topographical display of underground railway lines and stations, giving it any semblance of order. Gradually, he realized that the tube map was a handy fiction that made life easier, but bore no resemblance to the reality of the shape of the city above, like belonging to a political party, he thought once, proudly, and then, having tried to explain the resemblance between the tube maps. And politics at a party to a cluster of bewildered strangers, he had decided in the future to leave political comment to others. He continued slowly, by a process of osmosis and white knowledge, which is like white noise, only more informative, to comprehend the city, a process which accelerated. When he realized that the actual city of London itself was no bigger than a square mile, stretching from Aldgate in the east to Fleet Street and the law courts of the Old Bailey in the west, a tiny municipality, now home to London's financial institutions, and that was where it had all begun. Two thousand years before, London had been a little Celtic village on the north shore of the Thames, which the Romans had encountered and settled in. London had grown slowly until, roughly a thousand years later, it met the tiny royal city of Westminster immediately to the west, and once London Bridge had been built, London met the town of Southwark directly across the river, and it continued to grow, fields and woods and marshland slowly vanishing beneath the flourishing town, and it continued to expand, encountering other little villages and hamlets as it grew, like Whitechapel and Deptford to the east, Hammersmith and Shepherd's Bush to the west, Camden and Islington in the north, Battersea and Lambeth across the Thames to the south, absorbing all of them as it grew. Just a pool of mercury encounters and incorporates smaller beads of mercury, leaving only their names behind. London, grew into something huge and contradictory. It was a good place and a fine city, but there's a price to be paid for all good places, and a price that all good places have to pay. The building was large and covered with many thousands of burning lights. Conspicuous coats of arms on the wall facing them, proclaimed that it proudly sold all sorts of things by appointment to various members of the British royal family. Richard, who had spent many a footsore weekend hour trailing behind Jessica through every prominent shop in London, recognized it immediately. Even without the huge sign proclaiming it to be Herod's. The woman nodded. Only for tonight, she said. The next market could be anywhere. But I mean, said Richard, Herod's. It seemed almost sacrilegious to be sneaking into this place at night. They walked in through the side door the room was dark. They passed the bureau de change and the gift-wrapping section through another darkened room, selling sunglasses and figurines, and then they stepped into the Egyptian room. Color and light broke over Richard like a wave hitting the shore. His companion turned to him. She yawned. Like, shading the vivid pinkness of her mouth with the back of her caramel hand and then she smiled and said well, you're here safe and more or less sound I have business to attend to fare you well she nodded curtly and stepped away into the crowd Richard stood there alone in the throng, drinking it in. It was pure madness. Of that, there was no doubt at all. It was loud, and brash, and insane, and it was, in many ways, quite wonderful. People argued, haggled, shouted, sang. They hawked and touted their wares, and loudly declaimed, superiority of their merchandise. Music was playing, a dozen different kinds of music, being played a dozen different ways, on a score of different instruments, most of them improvised, improved, improbable. Richard could smell food, all kinds of food, The smells of curries and spices seemed to predominate, with beneath them the smells of grilling meats and mushrooms. Stalls had been set up all through the shop, next to or even on counters that, during the day, had sold perfume, or watches, or amber, or silk scarves. Everybody was buying. Everybody was selling. Richard listened to the market cries as he began to wander through the crowds. Richard wandered through the huge rooms of the store like a man in a trance. He was unable even to guess how many people there were at the night market. A thousand, two thousand, five thousand. Another sold lamps and candles made of many kinds of wax and tallow. One stall was piled high with bottles, full bottles, and empty bottles of every shape and every size, from bottles of booze to one huge glimmering bottle that could have contained nothing but a captive gin, a man thrust what appeared to be a child's severed hand clutching a candle towards him as he passed muttering, hand of glory sir, send him up the wooden hill to Bedfordshire guaranteed to work. Richard hurried past, not wishing to find out what a hand of glory was, nor how it worked. Something that looked very much like a portable shower facility, even a blacksmith. And every few stalls, there would be somebody selling food. He passed a stall selling glittering gold and silver jewelry another, selling jewelry made from what looked like the valves and wires of antique radios. There were stalls that sold every manner of book and magazine. Some of them had food cooking over open fires, curries and potatoes and chestnuts and huge mushrooms and exotic breads others that sold clothes old clothes patched and mended and made strange several tattooists something that he was almost certain was a small slave market he kept well clear of this a dentist's chair with a foot operated manual drill with a line of miserable people standing beside it waiting to have their teeth pulled or filed by a young man who seemed to be having altogether too good a time. A bent old man selling unlikely things that might have been hats and might have been examples of modern art. Richard found himself wondering why the smoke from the fires didn't set off the building's sprinkler system. Then he found himself wondering why no one was looting the store. Why set up their own little stalls? Why not take things from the shop itself? He knew better at this point than to risk asking anyone. He seemed marked as a man from London above, and thus worthy of great suspicion. There was something deeply tribal about the people, Richard decided. He tried to pick out distinct groups. There were the ones who looked like they had escaped from a historical reenactment society, the ones who reminded him of hippies, the albino people in gray clothes and dark glasses, The polished, dangerous ones in smart suits and black gloves. The huge, almost identical women who walked together in twos and threes and nodded when they saw each other. The tangle-haired ones who looked like they probably lived in sewers and who smelled like hell and a hundred other types and kinds. He wondered how normal London, his London, would look to an alien, and that made him bold. He began to ask them. As he went, Excuse me, I'm looking for a man named De Carabas and a girl called Dor. Do you know where I'd find them? Thank you for listening to Places to Sleep. I hope that you've been able to drift off along the way, but if you haven't, that's okay too. I hope that sometime soon you will find the perfect place to sleep, or just enjoy seeing it in your mind. If you've made it this far and you're still awake and you would like to get in touch with me, you are welcome to send me a message on Twitter at places to sleep. That's places, the number two, sleep. Good night.